third episode of Bridging the Gaps, a podcast series by FASTA and EHFF, the European Health Futures Forum. I'm Sean O'Conline, and I'm going to talk about the cigarettes in the world. And I'm Caroline White. In this episode, we'll be discussing basic income as a potential means to help halt the spread of pandemics such as the coronavirus, and also to ease the economic problems that this pandemic is triggering. A basic income is money that's given by a government to its citizens, with no strings attached. Unlike most existing welfare programmes, there's no need to demonstrate that you're looking for work to qualify for basic income. And indeed, in some versions, you can continue to receive basic income whether or not you're working. Advocates for basic income argue that in a situation such as the present one in which people need the financial independence to be able to stop working for a few weeks and self-isolate if necessary, a basic income could be an enormous help as it would go to everyone regardless of their employment status. We'll first be talking to Evelyn Forger, a health economist at the University of Manitoba, who has done extensive research into the health and social effects of basic income during a trial called MINCOM that was carried out in rural Manitoba in the 1970s. Later on, we'll be interviewing two people, Paul Harnett and Laura Bannister, who are involved in a campaign to introduce a World Basic Income Programme, which would distribute money to every single person on the planet. They'll be explaining why, given our current circumstances, they believe a World Basic Income to be both desirable and possible. But let's start with Evelyn Forger in Manitoba. So in the MINCOM trial, could you just briefly explain who was involved in it and what kind of form the trial took? The MINCOM experiment was uh, modeled on several similar experiments that took place in the U.S. And the idea was that we would run a randomized controlled trial on participants to see what the consequences of giving people a basic income was. It's a basic income in a very particular sense. It's not a universal basic income. Everybody doesn't receive the same amount of money every month. It depends on what your income from other sources are. So if your wage income increases, for example, the size of the stipend you get under income declines until it eventually disappears at you know, relatively high incomes. So it was decided that we needed a similar kind of a trial in Canada. And uh, the province of Manitoba was chosen as a test site. And there were really two key sites. The first was an urban center, the city of Winnipeg, and that was run just like all the U.S. experiment. There was a second site in Manitoba, and that's actually what led to my research. It was a small agriculturally dependent town of about 10,000 people called Dauphin. And in Dauphin, the design of the experiment was a little bit different. Instead of choosing subjects and control groups and doing a randomized controlled trial, they decided to run it as a saturation site. So they effectively went into town and they, they made announcements on the radio. They took out ads in the newspaper. They spread the word that anybody who wanted to participate could participate in this experiment. If um, your income fell below the agreed upon threshold, you'd receive the stipend. And as your income increased, it would disappear and so on. But everybody participated. And that was a very interesting because that was the only one of these experiments that had a saturation site. And it's, it's very interesting because it's much more like a general rollout of a basic income program than the very artificial kind of randomized controlled trials that were being mm. run elsewhere. 
So that's how it worked. You know, the amount of the stipend depended on your family size. The larger your family, the more money you got. And in Dauphin in particular, for every dollar your salary increased or your wage income increased, your stipend would decline by 50 cents. So it was sort of a gradual tail out of uh, support during the period. And so you were researching the health effects of this trial in, in particular. Well, I was. Uh, when income was introduced, the, really the only question they were looking at was what happened in the labor market. But in the 1970s, it was a really difficult period all around the world. Interest rates spiked, inflation spiked, unemployment was very high. So the economy sort of it went belly up midway through the trial. There were oil price shocks and governments that were very supportive of the concept of basic income at the beginning of the decade were distracted by all of this economic chaos elsewhere midway through. Mm. And uh, so what happened was that the data was never really analyzed. Um, it changed hands a number of times and it just sort of fell off the radar. I looked for a number of different ways to try to find my way into the data. And I was very fortunate because Canada had just introduced uh, universal health care at the beginning of the 1970s. And as you know, one of the consequences of a universal health care system is that a tremendous amount of data is generated by this system. And mm-hmm. so I was able to find everybody who was living in Dauphin during the experiment, you know, trace their family formation and uh, dissolution, their changes of address, their movement through the province and so on. Mm. And what particular aspects of the health of the people there were you looking at? Well, I'm interested in health in a very broad sense. There had been some earlier work done on the Winnipeg sample, and they were looking at the specific question that the researchers had at the beginning, and that is, will people work less if you give them a basic income? And they found, like we find all the time, that for primary earners, for adults with uh, full-time jobs, there's virtually no effect. But there seemed to be two groups of people who did reduce their hours. Now, the first were young mothers, new mothers. And in some sense, that's not surprising. And I talked to a number of people who lived in Dauphin during the period. The entitlement to maternity leave during the 1970s in Canada was about four weeks. Mm. And a lot of new mothers thought that that was a rather miserly parental leave. And so they quite understandably, I think, used the stipend to buy themselves longer parental leaves. Mm-hmm. But the other group of people who reduced the number of hours they worked seemed to um, fulfill a lot of stereotypes during the period. And these were, and the language is just really, really important here. The language they used was young, unattached males, young men who aren't married, who don't have okay. families who are living by themselves. And um, so these young, unattached males reduced the number of hours they worked pretty dramatically, in some cases up to about 80%. And everybody said, right, well, we told you so. Give people a basic income, you can see what they do. And I had a pretty fair idea of where I'd find them. So I went looking for those young, unattached males in in the data and, and in person, in fact. And what I found in the data was the nice little increase in high school completion rates that was exactly coincident. Ah the experiment if you think about the differences in life chances the differences in the opportunities that those boys would have had over the next 40 years i think it's very interesting because the boys who left school at 16 did get jobs immediately but they got jobs in industries that have been devastated since then Mm, yes you know agriculture would have employed dozens and dozens of young men in the 1970s and now they've all been replaced by one huge combine that can take down a field of wheat in no time at all Similarly, manufacturing would have employed a lot of people in the 1970s, but between offshoring and technological change, those jobs have virtually disappeared. And so it's true, they worked less 
during that particular period because they stayed in high school, but the ones who stayed in high school and managed to graduate and go on had very different opportunities open to them. So that was my first finding. The second finding looked at health more specifically, and I looked at the data that was available to me through the Medicare system. One of the consequences of using this database is that I could create my own control group that they hadn't done during the period because I had the database for everybody who lived in the province. And so I managed to find three controls for everybody who was living in Dauphin during the period. So if I had a 20-year-old woman living in Dauphin, I found three other 20-year-old women living in similar kinds of towns and similar kinds of families elsewhere. When I compared the results, I found that hospitalization rates for people living in Dauphin during the period fell by about 8.5% relative Mm. to the control group. Now, if you think about the amount of money a high-income country like Canada spends on hospitals every year, that's a huge, huge amount of money that's yeah. going into treating it. And so I looked more closely at the, at the data to find out why they were being hospitalized less often. And there were really two things that were responsible for it. The first was accidents and injuries. Now, that's just a huge category that's picking up almost all acute hospitalizations. But it's picking up things like car accidents, many of which are associated with alcohol Mm. consumption, um, family violence, uh, self-harm, and so on. And in some sense, that's not surprising because whenever we look at the data, we always find that accidents and injuries are much higher in low-income communities. And so we did find that. We found a decline in that. The other category that in some ways is even more interesting was that there were many, many fewer hospitalizations for conditions with a strong mental health component. So Mm -hmm. there were fewer people being hospitalized with mental health issues. I looked at visits to family doctors and I found a similar kind of a decline in visits to family doctors. And the only thing that turned out to be statistically significant was mental health. So people were going to family doctors less often complaining about things like depression and anxiety and uh, family dysfunction and so on, sleep disorders. Mm, So it looks like a basic income is associated with an improvement in physical, but especially in mental health. Mm. It makes me think that with our current situation where a lot of people are self-isolating and not necessarily in the best mental health state. I mean, it's not necessarily very conducive to mental health to be cut off, especially depending on your circumstance. If you're like in an apartment and completely by yourself and and no contact with the sky, more or less, or nature, it could really help at least Exactly. Exactly. Especially not to be worried about paying your rent on that apartment. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Now, just to pan out, do you have any comments or thoughts about how basic income could help the situation that we're in right now with the virus? I guess the one thing I'm very aware of, I have a daughter who's very active in the arts community and she's an administrator and so she has a salary, but many, many of the people in her social circle don't. And so I'm hearing from people, people who are paying the bills by being bartenders or working in the service sector in one way or another, who are absolutely terrified about what's going to happen to them next, Mm. you know, waiting for a government to put some kind of support program in place and get the forms out and actually support them so they can pay their rent next month. And I guess, you know, on the one hand, we're hearing every day from government about the need to self-isolate. On the other hand, you've got people who really don't have the luxury of self-isolating. If people have no income, they're going to work. They're going to get out there and they're going to make money. They don't have the opportunity to use basic income to support themselves. 
the other thing I'm very, very aware of is, you know, it's, it's one thing to self-isolate when you're living in a 1500 square foot house and, um, you know, you've got good Wi-Fi. It's a very different thing to self-isolate if you're a single parent with a couple of kids in a one-bedroom apartment and the kids are just pining to go outside and to play with their friends. And, you know, how do, how do you do these sorts of things without the income that allows you to purchase the amenities that many of us take for granted? Mm. What do we do with the homeless population? You're at shelters talking to people and you realize that the mats in some of the shelters are just, you know, chock-a-block. They're just side by side by side. How do you self-isolate under those circumstances? It's impossible to imagine. I'm just wondering, you're an academic very well versed in what's going on in the whole area of research, but what are the main questions that are outstanding that haven't been answered from your perspective? You know, what I'm becoming increasingly aware of is that we can amass all of the scientific evidence about the benefits of basic income that we want and that we can, and every time we do it, we get more and more and more evidence. But if you can't convince people that the evidence is actually valid, if it doesn't ring true to them, we're not going to end up with a general policy. And so I think that the one gap that I see is how we move from science to policy, how we actually convince people that the evidence we have is something that they can pay attention to. I, for example, still hear people arguing that a basic income is going to reduce the incentive to work. Well, you know, there's nothing we have more evidence on in so many different circumstances that it really doesn't. If people work less, there's usually a very good reason for it. People don't suddenly become lazy if you give them a basic income. They don't run away from their responsibilities. In fact, they're better able to meet the responsibilities they've taken on. But that that doesn't ring true for people. People don't believe it. Um, the addiction thing I come across constantly. Well, I've been spending a lot of time talking to people who've got substance use issues or people who've lived with that or people who provide services. And what I'm told constantly over and over and over again is how difficult it is to stay sober if you have no basic income. You know, what basic income does is it, it doesn't prevent addictions. I mean, we have people at all income levels who have tremendous addictions. But when people decide to make a change in their life, they absolutely need a basic income in order to to live a reasonable life. We see the same thing with people coming out of prison. I mean, there's such a, a moralistic stance that we take about people who don't deserve basic income. Well, if you don't give people the resources they need to live well, they're going to find those resources and they're going to find them one way or another. They're going to be driven back into exactly the same circumstances that landed them in prison in the first place. So I think what basic income does is it creates opportunities for people. It doesn't force people to make the right choices. It just gives them the opportunity, if they're about to make the right choices, to finance it. It's fascinating when you look at the basic income and when you think that all it requires is just a bit of leadership to go and do it, basically. How much scientific evidence do you need? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's exactly the point. I mean, I'm a scientist. What can I say? That's what I do. And yet mm -hmm. you realize that that's not nearly enough. There's an important gap in there that somehow we're not addressing and maybe we're not the right people to address it but somebody needs to address it. it it needs to be done if i can just say one other thing i mean i i've just been thinking a bit historically um canada introduced family allowances baby bonuses after the second world war it wasn't the first time that this idea had been touted in Canada, and it had been introduced several times. And until the 1950s, it had always been rejected on the grounds that A, it was too expensive, 
B, it would lead to more alcoholism. It would lead to addictions. Mm. And C, it would make people lazy. People would stop working. Sounds awfully familiar, right? And then suddenly after the Second World War, after the expansion of government activism, suddenly the concept of a baby bonus or a family allowance suddenly became reasonable. And so it was introduced. And of course, it was introduced right at the beginning of the most expansive period of economic growth we've ever seen, right at the beginning of the 1950s. And so the introduction of a baby bonus certainly didn't lead to the massive inflation that people had worried about. It didn't lead to people working less. Um, there's certainly no evidence that it led to greater alcoholism or greater substance use. So a crisis created an opportunity to contemplate new ways of doing things. And one never knows. That was Evelyne Forger, a health economist at the University of Manitoba, speaking about her research into the social and health effects of the MINCOM basic income trial that took place in rural Canada. Trials such as MINCOM have typically been quite small scale. However, we're living in a world in which crises such as the coronavirus can very quickly reach global proportions. So while it might be very good for one region or country to have a basic income to help stabilise its public health system and its economy, that wouldn't be of much help to neighbouring countries. What if we were to consider introducing a worldwide basic income as a global solution to global problems? We interviewed Paul Harnett and Laura Bannister. Paul is a development economist and has worked throughout Africa, Asia, Central America, Europe and the USA. Laura is an economic and trade justice campaigner. They're both directors of World Basic Income. Paul and Laura, you're involved with the World Basic Income movement. Is this really a good time to be thinking about a world basic income? Because we've got this huge emergency going on, this pandemic. Why should people be focusing on the world basic income? This is an international problem and we do need an international solution. If we miss out anybody on this planet, then this virus can come back at us. Obviously, everyone's going to need health solutions. But part of those health solutions are the means to eat and shelter yourself and access health care. And a basic income for everybody on the planet would contribute to that. That's really why people all of a sudden are talking about basic income. Because here in the UK, millions and millions of workers will not receive sick pay. There are so many people self-employed, five million, they're missed out. What about the illegal migrants, maybe? What are the, what's going to happen to them? We have to hit everybody, every single person. And so in order to do that, we just need a basic income for everybody, whatever their status is. And I include children there as well. We need people around the world to be able to do the right thing. That means self-isolating if they're showing symptoms. It means social distancing to, to try and reduce the spread of the virus. Those things are very difficult for everybody. They're extremely difficult if you're in a situation where you're on an extremely low income already, you have no savings, you have a large family or extended family that's relying on your income. So if you imagine that you're, for instance, you work in a t-shirt factory in Bangladesh and your extended family all rely on the cash that you send back to your home village every month and then you get ill, you know, how are you going to support your family? How are you going to support yourself? How are you going to pay for your lodgings? How are you going to eat while you're ill? So it's going to be very difficult for you to stop going to work. And if you do have to stop going to work, it's going to be very difficult for you and your family to survive. So you really need solutions that work for, for these individuals. And, and these individuals represent many billions of people across the world. If we're going to have any success in containing this virus. I also think 
that what we're seeing at the moment is a recognition of who is important in our society. Health workers, care workers, people who work in supermarkets, bin men, people who deliver things. And these are all people who've been existing on low wages. Sometimes they haven't even had enough wages to pay their rent. Now, if we had a basic income, all of a sudden, these people would have a bargaining chip and we'd see increases in the, all of those workers' wages. And I think that's important as well, because those are the people who are important in the world. Do we really need bankers to earn so much money? No. We also need to consider that we're completely reliant in the UK on international supply chain. So we are eating food, using goods, buying things off the internet to keep us going during self-isolation. These products are produced by people often in quite poor countries, often on very low wages. We are relying on these workers to stay well and to keep sending us these goods that we desperately need. If we don't address the coronavirus crisis everywhere, we also risk ultimately harming the people that we're relying on to provide the goods that we need to live. So I think what this virus is going to show us is how hugely interconnected the world is in terms of how we get the food that we eat, how we get the stuff that we need, and which workers it is worldwide that really provide those essential goods for us. It's not a time when we can really afford to be knuckling down in our own towns and cities and refusing to consider people that live beyond those borders. Mm -hmm. So on the subject of affording things, what would you say to people who claim that we can't afford to have a world basic income? There's two answers to that, really. Um, the first one is that we can afford to have a world basic income. We have spent several years analysing world financial statistics, world economic flows, and identified a number of suitable funding streams that if we tapped into those, taking small amounts through things like international carbon taxation or of, on financial transactions or royalties on the protection of intellectual property, we could easily take measures like that that would accrue a very large global fund. So this absolutely is affordable and the numbers are available on our website. The other answer to that question, the government has suddenly come up with hundreds of billions of pounds in order to keep the population going, to make sure that people can eat. Their plan is still full of holes because a lot of people are going to be missed out by the current proposals. But that money has been generated presumably by the creation of currency or the accumulation of government debt. But basically, when you need money, money can be generated, money can be provided for what the world needs. There's no reason at all why that couldn't be done on the international scale if the other funding mechanisms that we propose for normal times would not be sufficient or workable during the crisis. I'd just like to go back to explaining our journey a little bit, I think, especially with respect to the theme of these podcasts, because our journey began to eradicate world poverty. I myself have been working in international development for all of my adult life. It just seemed to me that the answer to poverty was to give people money. And most of these aid schemes that we have around the world really aren't addressing the basics, which is just give people money. That's how to address poverty. But then as the climate crisis bit more and more, we looked at how we could protect our planet by putting a fee on the extraction of carbon and distributing any proceeds to the world's population. And now we're looking at an international virus. And again, a world basic income has come to the forefront. People are talking about it more as a mechanism to address this international crisis. So I think it's really important that we look at these things as interconnected. Poverty, the climate crisis and disease, pandemics, they're all interconnected. And really, the only way to deal with all of this is to 
look after every single person on this planet and ensure that their behaviour does not destroy this planet. Ultimately, it doesn't cost very much to make sure that every person on the planet is able to eat and able to stay healthy and safe. Small basic incomes have been found, so I'm talking about levels between, smallest was around $2 per person per month, up to things like $22 a month per person. These really small amounts in countries that have where people have low incomes have been shown to absolutely completely transform people's lives. So people come away from regular starvation or, or they go from eating one meal a day to eating three meals a day. People are able to send their kids to school because they can pay the small school fees or afford the uniform or the books. People are able to afford healthcare. They can pay the cost of getting to the clinic. They can pay the small fees that they usually have to cough up to use those services. People start businesses. People improve their homes and make them safe. So it's really tiny amounts that are actually required. But when we talk about a worldwide basic income, we propose initially $10 per person per month worldwide. That includes children. So we, you know, for, for families with children, we're talking about probably more like $40, $50 a month in total. So to get $10 a month per person to everybody, that's only around 1.2% of world GDP. So we're really, it's really about redistributing a tiny, tiny proportion of the wealth and income that the world produces each year. And again, you know, if you want to increase that figure, say to $30 per person per month, which would absolutely blast extreme poverty out of the water, that's still only a few percent of global GDP that you're redistributing. So it's not really big money in global terms. And we could solve a historic disaster of humanity that is extreme poverty. I wonder, could you explain how you can reconcile the differences between what might be a basic income in one of those countries you talked about, say $10 a month or whatever it is, and the, what a basic income might be in Sweden or the UK or Ireland or whatever, which presumably would be much higher. We can deal with that in various ways. What we've always said is that a world basic income is not instead of a national basic income. What we're looking at here for a world basic income is something that addresses extreme poverty. People who are living on under $1.90 a day, and that's a large percentage of the world's population, unfortunately. And we're also looking at people who are even earning a little bit more than that a day, and you can get up to over half the world's population. Let me give you a quick example of redistribution. The billionaires, there's 2,153 of them last year, they're worth 8.7 trillion. If we had one wealth tax that said all of those billionaires could only have a billion dollars worth of assets each, that would raise 6.6 .6 trillion, just one tax like that. 6.6 .6 trillion is enough for about $70 each for everybody in the world. That input of $70 each, and I, I'm including children, that level of input would be enormous for so many families around this planet. It would be incredible. And that's just one small tax. We're looking at dozens of taxes. We can raise huge amounts of money. So let's have it for the whole of the world. And then in other countries, if you're a wealthier country, it's not too difficult to reform your welfare program to start charging taxes on bad practices in your own country and raise more money and have your own basic income for the UK, Ireland, France, Germany. What about the mechanics of distributing the, an income like that in countries that don't have very good infrastructure and just getting the money to people physically? How could that be tackled? 
Well, the answer to that is really the mobile phone and the countries leading the way with mobile phone banking are Kenya, Uganda. It's it's being done in Liberia now, but it's, it's actually being carried out in most countries. There are very few countries that don't have a good mobile phone system and therefore can potentially have a good mobile banking system. And when I say that, I'm not talking about going on the internet and having internet banking. I'm actually talking about walking up to a person behind a table in Kenya and on your mobile phone, and you can use the old Nokias, not the smartphones, on your mobile phone, you ask that person at the table, what's your number? And you then send that person 50,000 Kenyan shillings and then they will give you that cash that's how it works and that's how it can work all across the world we've got massive experiments going on in uganda kenya liberia where this is happening and there's no real reason why this cannot be rolled out to every single person in the world there's tons of ways in which people receive cash transfers in remote countries and countries with poor infrastructure so one way, as Paula said, is through mobile phone banking. Another, often this is used in refugee camps, is people are just issued with a payment card and the money is automatically credited to that card each month and they use it with a PIN number or with a biometric ID like a fingerprint swipe. What often happens is that small traders set up little businesses that can turn these resources into cash. So they'll get the machine that can read the cards, for instance, and then they'll become like a human cash machine. And often it's this kind of small entrepreneurship partnered with the bigger technological solutions. That means that everybody, including older people, people who live a long way from towns, um, everybody ends up being able to access this money. Ultimately, if you have money accumulating in an account in your name that you signed up to via some remote mobile system like this, you will find a way to access it. And evidence shows that people do find ways to get this money. It can actually be transferred at very low cost to people in an instant all over the world with very little trouble with modern technology. What steps do you see in taking the world approach to its next step? And how do you see the link between, if you like, a national government or a national movement, particularly in the West, and the kinds of countries you've talked about who need, in the short term anyway, a much lower level of income? At the moment, we've got experiments all over the world, but none of them are on a big regional level or even a national level. So we were in discussions with the Labour Party here in the UK that if they won the election that the overseas aid budget of the UK, if you spent 5% of it, you could put a basic income into Sierra Leone. And we thought that that would demonstrate to the whole of the world how a new revolutionary form of aid could actually help the poor in Sierra Leone because traditional aid usually goes through the treasury of the government of Sierra Leone and not directly to the people. So that was one of our ideas. Laura's got other examples as well. In normal times, the way that you would push forward an initiative like this will be to build up from smaller examples. So Paul has mentioned the idea of a whole country basic income pilot. That's something that you could then scale up both in terms of the people and the countries that receive it, and also in terms of the way that it's funded. So international aid might be a good way to get this going, but ultimately you need to start building in global funding mechanisms, so taxation that's raised at the global level. So you could start with something simple like a levy on international flights. That would be very easy to put in place. It could be done immediately and you could start adding it into the pot. Perhaps a few other countries were adding their international aid budgets to, and then that would then be a big enough pot to provide a basic income in a few poor countries. And then you continue to scale that up. It can bring in more countries, you bring in more different financial flows 
until ultimately you've built the system that you need to provide a basic income for everybody worldwide. Obviously, we also need to build a global movement of awareness and we need to build global demand from people everywhere. We want people everywhere to be clamouring for this option. It's our fundamental human right that we've had been recognised for many decades to live and to have basic sustenance provided as a right of our very human existence. When people start to understand that there is an option, there is a way that that could actually be done in a practical sense, that's very powerful and people are very keen to get on board with it. I think at the moment we need to build on the networks that we already have. So we have an international advisory board. These are basic income experts based in countries all over the world. We have experts in Malawi, in India, in Kenya, Guatemala, in Mexico, in Brazil, in the USA. And these experts are contributing ideas to the movement. And they're also beginning to spread the word and spread interest and demand where they're based as well. So if we build from that network, start to build that awareness on a global level and start to build the real life examples, that gives us something from which we can scale up and actually make this a reality. That was Paul Harnett and Laura Bannister from the World Basic Income Movement talking about the possibility of a global basic income. Many thanks to both of them and to Evelyn Forger for participating in this podcast And thanks, as always, to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp.